One of the interesting things about living in a big city is you never know who you'll bump into. Right outside of City Hall in Center City, Philadelphia, at lunchtime I got in line for a food truck and right in front of me I saw a man wearing a white tunic. He had long brown hair and a beard. He was sporting sandals in the middle of November. It was Philly Jesus taking a break from his preaching. He was standing in line for a hot dog. I didn't have the heart to tell him that this stand doesn't sell all beef franks. Philly Jesus is a well-known local celebrity in Center City, Philadelphia. He was a former drug user, but when his life was turned around, his mission was to share the teachings of Jesus with other people who were down and out like he was, except he did so in character. Well, while online, we made eye contact, and he asked me in a very serious voice, do you know who I am? I wasn't sure how to respond. I said, I guess you could say I'm a really big fan of your work. Now, underneath his tunic, it looked like he was wearing a Philadelphia Eagles jersey. I mean, if that doesn't show you that he's truly committed to the least, the last, and the lost, I don't know what does. It was really tough to be a Giants fan in Philadelphia, for sure. Well, when it came time to pay, he asked if I had a couple of bucks on me to pay for his hot dog. I never really thought about this, but I guess two Knicks don't really have any pockets on them. He thanked me for paying, and as he was walking away, he turned and said to me, Just remember, I'll be back. Now, this humorous encounter actually raises a a very serious question. In our day, how can you tell who are the real teachers and followers of Jesus? How can you tell the difference between an authentic Christian and the almost Christian? Well, we're getting towards the end of of, uh, our study on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you were to glance back at Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 what we would see is that Jesus covers a lot of territory on how we are to live as kingdom people, how we are to entrust ourselves to God, how we are to forgive others, how we are to order our sexual lives, how we are to keep our word, how we are to pray. God's way of living in the kingdom encompasses every aspect of our lives. But as Pastor Tracy taught us last week, As Jesus gets to the end of the sermon, he goes from a wide focus to a narrow one. According to Jesus, there are only two paths that we could be on. Either you are on the path that leads to destruction, or you're on the path that leads to life. And in our passage today, Jesus continues this line of thinking, and he says, there are only two kinds of teachers and followers those who are false and those who are true. And sometimes the false ones almost look authentic. Jesus is saying, on the outside, these false teachers and followers, they may look good and they may sound good, but if you really look closely underneath, they're really nothing like me and their way ends in destruction. So we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 20 about the teachers and verses 21 to 23 about the followers side by side under three headings this morning. 
The first is the challenge of false teachers and followers. The second is the character of teachers and followers. And the third is the consequences for teachers and followers. Now before we get into the specifics of what Jesus says here, let's be honest and admit that for our modern ears, this is hard to hear from Jesus. And that's for many reasons. But let me just identify a couple. Jesus' teaching seems to contradict the values of tolerance and diversity. One version of tolerance in our society is the belief that all views must be treated the same, especially in the areas of religion and spirituality. Jesus clearly does not teach that. One version of diversity means that we must embrace and even celebrate all ideas central to a person's identity as, as if they were true. And Jesus clearly doesn't teach that either. So what are we to make of Jesus' teaching as modern hearers? To start, tolerance and diversity begin with the practice of listening to our neighbors around us. Whether they practice a traditional religion like Islam or Hinduism, or they have more loose spiritual beliefs, or perhaps they have no spiritual beliefs at all, they don't believe in God. Tolerance and diversity means we must start by listening. Now just as an example, my barber was a convert to Islam when he spent time in jail, and um, afterwards he became a barber, and I would visit him on a monthly basis. And we would sit and talk about the differences between our faiths as we listen to each other. He had his views and I had mine. And let me just say, when he got to the part of shaving my neck, I was very, very careful about what I said next. Now, what if after all these conversations I had with him, I said to him, you have beliefs about God, I have beliefs about God, and in the end, they both are true. I would basically be admitting to him, I didn't listen to him seriously at all. Because if I take his Muslim belief seriously, it automatically puts a limit to the degree I can embrace his ideas as a Christian. Our views of God, and especially of the person of Jesus Christ, are very different. And this applies to all other non-Christian religions, not just, also in the, uh, not just in dealing with religion, but to other views of life as well. Well, what if I were to conclude, well, in the end, both ways end, uh, lead to God. I'm not actually taking the idea of diversity seriously either, because to say that all religions end up on the same path is essentially to whitewash the differences between faiths. And to minimize the differences between faiths is actually quite intolerant. It fails to acknowledge the true diversity that exists between different worldviews. Well, you say, well, doesn't Jesus' teaching then lead to bigotry, maybe even to violence? Well, you tell me, Jesus said this, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus taught his disciples, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. More than tolerance, Jesus commands us to love. 
Look at society's response to those who don't embrace certain versions of diversity. It isn't to love them, it's to what? It's to cancel them. And unfortunately, Christians get caught up in this response as well from time to time. But Jesus' teaching is clear. We are to direct our lives and our resources to benefit those around us, no matter who they are or what they believe. And here is the kicker. We are to do so especially if they are our enemies. At the end of the day, Jesus' teaching on love is much wider than our culture's value of tolerance. And though Jesus does not embrace all ideologies as true and good, he calls us to extend our lives for others more than our culture's view and embrace of diversity would lead us to. Now you see, the question is not, is, is not just will we as the church believe Jesus' teaching, but are we willing to follow it, to love to the extent that he actually calls us to in an environment where more and more people are growing impatient with traditional Christianity? That is the question that the church must answer. Now, as we get into our passage, we discover that following Jesus has always been hard, not just because it's narrow, but because along the way to the kingdom, we will encounter false teachers and followers around us. They will pose a challenge to us. That's the first thing we see in this passage. In verse 15, Jesus says this, Beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That's the challenge of the false teachers. Verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's the challenge of the false followers. Now, this idea of prophets is a bit foreign to us. If someone came up to you in school and said, I'm a prophet, or someone put on their resume, I'm a prophet, you would look in the other direction for sure. But all of our, idea, all of our ideas about God, ourselves, and the world have come from somewhere. They have been passed on to us by others, and those ideas affect the way that we live. The people you let closest into your life, your heroes that you admire from afar, the cultural icons that you look up to, the ideas that shape your interests and passions, whether you're always aware of it or not, will change the direction of your life, your family, your community, and even your entire future. And for Israel, they depended on the prophetic voices to guide them. In the Bible, prophets were chosen by God to teach his law and also to foretell the future acts of God in history. They were the mouthpieces of God. But from the time God's people left Egypt to the time the people went into exile, there were false prophets who taught about the gods. They also put people to sleep. I don't mean literally, I mean spiritually. They told the people they don't need to worry about the fact that they've fallen into sin, that they were not in danger of falling into God's judgment for their disobedience. And sadly, and this is perhaps the most tragic thing of all, they took advantage of God's people. And Ezekiel tells us about the worst of them in Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel says this, 
They failed to strengthen the weak. They did not heal the sick. They did not bring those back who have wandered away from the faith. They ministered to other people, yes, but they did it to benefit themselves. They did it to to indulge their appetites rather than to help God's people. They used their power and their authority in the name of God to cover up their abuse. They wielded their authority to be nothing but for their self-centered lifestyles. And it's sad to say but I don't think I'm just summarizing what Ezekiel said 2,500 years ago. I think I'm actually describing what so many of you know and have seen in the church today. So the question is, how can we tell who is authentic? With so many people claiming to speak about God in our world, how can we tell where to find his voice? Well, earlier Mary read these words to us. Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. It is to him you shall listen. All throughout Israel's history, God raised up leaders to keep them close to his covenant. Moses led the people out of Egypt and into the wilderness. Just, uh, Joshua led the people into the promised land. Elijah was a prophet during the divided kingdom. Even when God's people were in exile, he sent, the prophet, he sent prophets like Daniel to correct them and bring them back to himself. But for only one of God's prophets did the Father ever tear open the sky and say, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. The book of Hebrews begins like this. In the past, God spoke through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. Here's what this means. Everything God had said prior to Jesus was to prepare us to receive Jesus as Lord. Jesus is the final authority on all things related to God. So how do we know that someone is speaking for God? It comes down to what they say about the person of Jesus Christ. But there is more to this, and it's important that we see it. Peter, in his first letter, tells us that it was the Spirit of Christ that was speaking all along through the Old Testament. Jesus isn't simply the final prophet that Moses predicted back in Deuteronomy. Jesus was speaking through all the inspired prophets of God. It was the breath of Christ that carried the words of Moses, Jeremiah, and the other prophets of the Old Testament. You see, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament era, whether it was in the early days of the church or the 21st century the Lord Jesus is the standard by which we evaluate all claims about God. Jesus is at the center of what God is up to in the world. So if the ideas or leaders or people or choices you are making is steering you away from following the Lord Jesus, 
you can be sure you're no longer on God's agenda. It doesn't matter if the people you are following claim to be Christian or pastor a large church, or maybe they're a well-credentialed biblical scholar or theologian. On the surface, what they say may sound good. They may even have a significant following. But if at the end of the day, what they are doing is leading you away from treasuring the Lord Jesus Christ above all things, they are not true followers of God. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. That's what they are, according to Jesus. Now that's the challenge of false teachers and followers. Let's now look at their character. In verse 16 and 20, Jesus says this, you will recognize them by their fruits. If they really believe the truth about Jesus, it will show in their lives. Not just what they teach, but in how they treat others, how they run their ministry. Jesus is saying what comes to the top of their lives reflects what's really at root in their hearts. When you consider joining a church or being part of a ministry, you probably do a little bit of research. What are the church's beliefs? Who are the leaders? What do they preach? What are the things they're doing to serve God in the community around them? And Jesus is saying, they may have good doctrine. They may even call me Lord. And they may do wonderful things in my name. They may even bring many people to faith. And they can even cast out the demonic. But those things alone do not reveal that they are my disciples by any means. Just because someone signs off on a doctoral statement that says they believe the Bible to be true and authoritative doesn't actually mean that they live under the authority of Jesus Christ. And just because someone can preach from the Bible and have thousands of people listening to them each week and their sermons are downloaded all over the world doesn't mean they know how to care for a person's soul one bit. Now in the American church, we can mistake agreement with doctrinal statements with faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And we can confuse showiness that draws a crowd with substance of character. I have benefited and shared many podcasts of preachers with others. Uh, many of you have too. But for as many hours as you can listen, even to the most sound teachers, you can never really know what they are about until you see what fruit they produce. Does their life actually reflect the teaching of the New Testament? Are they compassionate to struggling sinners? Or are they heavy-handed? Do they shepherd the church with other elders? Or are they all about executing their own vision? Do they welcome correction from other people? Do they live with a spirit of repentance? Do they seek out accountability from others about their sinful vulnerabilities? Are they like John the Baptist, the last of the prophets of the Old Testament? Do they say, I must decrease and Christ must increase? Are they like the Lord Jesus Christ and they are willing to lay down their lives for the sheep? In the words of Jesus here, 
Do they do the will of the Father in heaven? Do they live the way the Sermon on the Mount talks about? Carl Truman is an author and professor who used to teach uh, seminary students. And when he taught the first-year seminary students, he would go around and ask each of them, which pastors have most influenced you? And the students would name the big names, the names that you and I maybe uh, would roll off our, our tongue so easily. And he made the comment that the church, and pastors themselves included in this, have lost sight of what it means to be truly shepherded. The church has become like the music industry or like the TV industry. The church in America uh, promotes the idea of a celebrity pastor as if they could replace a local shepherd. Now, I believe there are many faithful teachers and Bible teachers that we can learn from. But a book, a podcast, a website, a sermon doesn't actually show you a person's character. And this is an important aspect of evaluating the truthfulness of a teacher or follower of Christ. Listen to how Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message. Don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. And the only way to know the character of church leaders is through discipleship and accountability in the local church. All of us need to be pastored locally. To be pastored by mature disciples who obey Jesus' lordship and whose lives reflect the fruit of obeying that lordship. We need to share meals with people who model the life of Jesus before us, who can teach us and we can join them to imitate the life of the Lord Jesus. And that is true for pastors as well. I need the help of a pastor just as much as anyone else here. Paul says to Timothy, to watch your life and to watch your doctrine. And all of us would be off better if we had a more set of eyes looking at both of those things together, our lives and our doctrine. It's only the kind of close contact and significant time spent with other Christians that you can really know if they are following the way of Christ. Now I want to say a word to those who really aren't sure about the Christian faith and what to make of it. Maybe you've made judgments about the faith from things you've heard or things you've read. But what Jesus is doing here is saying, come and see for yourself of what it's like to be part of a community that follows me. See the difference that Christ makes in the lives of people by joining us for worship services, by getting involved in small groups. We'd love to extend that welcome to you today after church if, if we have not met you yet at the welcome desk. Now, if you've been coming to our church and have not yet connected with deacons and elders, directors, small group leaders, and pastors, I want to encourage you to get close to other Christians so you can see and experience the difference of gospel living together. The fruit that you will see in your life when your life is joined to other Christians, 
mature disciples of Christ, to leaders in his church, is something far more than you can get than when you're just listening to sermons or teaching on your own. Now, so far, we've looked at the challenges and the characters of the teachers and followers. Let's look now at the consequences for false teachers and followers. In verse 19, this is what Jesus says. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the one who says, Lord, Lord, but who doesn't do the will of the Father, this is what Jesus says in verse 23. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These are among some of the hardest words that Jesus has ever spoken. Jesus teaches that as Lord, he is also the judge over God's creation. Those who teach another way to God outside of Jesus Christ, followers who claim to follow Christ but do not bear his fruit in their lives and have an unbelieving heart are given to the outcome of their choices. They are given eternal separation from God for all eternity. Now, it may sound off-putting to talk about eternal consequences, but you see, just like the prophets before him, Jesus tells us about God's coming judgment to warn us, to give us the opportunity to repent and to turn to him. He is God's son who is the final prophet, but he is also the judge. If you were walking along a path and I knew that that path would lead down a long, dark ditch, and I didn't say anything to you, would that actually be loving? Wouldn't warning you be the act of love? Well, how much more so than when we're talking about not falling down a ditch, but eternal separation from the God who made us? Jesus warns us about the great day of judgment because he loves us. And not only that, his love for us motivated him to suffer God's judgment against sin for us. He endured the hell of God's wrath for those who trust in his name. He was the judge judged in our place. No matter how far you've already walked down the wide way that leads to death, you are not beyond his reach today. Maybe at one point, you were closer in the faith, you were near to God, and then you ran away and you lived for yourself for many years. The Father has not stopped waiting for you to return back to him. But Jesus' warning about the coming judgment isn't just for those who don't believe in him. It's for those who also call themselves Christians, but do not obey his teaching. How does it happen that those who follow Christ end up falling away? How does this even happen to pastors and teachers in the church? John Bunyan, in his story, Pilgrim's Progress, gives us some reasons why those who call themselves Christians fall away. Here are some of them. First, they isolate themselves from Christian fellowship. They don't keep Christian people close to them. And along with that, they stop attending worship. 
when that happens, when they remove Christian influences from their lives, they then become influenced by those who do not teach them to walk in the way of Jesus, but instead to walk in the way that gratifies the self and obeys the teachings of the world. Second, they indulge themselves in small, sinful pleasures. I don't think he's talking about like a second helping of dessert here. He means things like allowing your mind to dwell on resentments and the wrongs that have been done to you. He's talking about giving yourself over to excess, overworking, oversleeping, indulging in entertainment that distracts you from real life engagement in your life. Now here's the final one I'll give you. He says, they stop meditating on the gospel. They draw off their thoughts from the remembrance of God, death, and the judgment to come. All those who trust in Christ by faith are truly God's children and have been given eternal life and are saved from God's wrath forever. But Christ will still judge us for every word that we have uttered. And if we are teachers in the church, every word that we have taught. But God's word calls each of us to examine ourselves to see whether or not we are truly in the faith. This past fall, I interviewed a man by the name of Father Augustine Weta from a St. Louis monastery. And he said that the way the housing arrangements were set up, the oldest monk uh, in the group uh, was roomed closest to the cemetery. It was to remind them that soon one day they will die and face Christ for all eternity. When a disciple of Jesus keeps in mind that they will die and that they too will face Jesus, it actually really teaches them how to live today. Psalm 96, 13 says this. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Christ's judgment for the believer is not to fill us with dread, but instead to take every opportunity to be alert in our faith, always eager to do the will of God. Those who are listening to me today, you who are listening to me today, do you believe this? Do you know that when you die, you will face the creator of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will ask you, what have you made of me? Did you believe in me? Did you follow me in the way that I have laid out? He will ask each of us that. He will not ask us, in the words of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, if you were a good Protestant, if you were a good Lutheran, if you were a good Presbyterian, he will not ask that. He will ask, did you obey the will of my Father? And sadly, those who turn away from Christ will not be acquitted before the judgment seat of God. And neither will they who said they were Christians, who said they trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, but did not walk in the way of Jesus. But to those who did trust in Christ and endured in faithfulness to the end, the day of judgment, by God's grace, 
will bring the unending joy of being united to our master, Jesus Christ, forever. That is the news of Judgment Day. And may God give us the grace to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ until that great day. If you have not yet fixed your eyes on Christ, may today be that day. If you have fixed your eyes on Christ and you have wandered away, may you refix your gaze again. And if you are following Jesus today, may God give you the grace to follow him tomorrow and the next day until you see him face to face. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are the great judge over all creation. And we humbly acknowledge that apart from you, we have no hope in this life or in the life to come. Lord, we are so grateful that in your mercy, you warn us so that we could come to you not in cowering fear, but in endless joy, knowing that when we come to you, we know the one we were created to know, and that we are walking along the way that truly leads to life and goodness and blessing to all. Father, would you help each of us endure and give us the strength to be faithful to the end. Through the Lord Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.